Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. Medieval Iceland was an exceptional land in many different ways. In fact, the island ought to have been a utopia. Iceland had no kings, lords, peasants, clearly defined taxes, or defense forces. And yet, despite these circumstances, bloodshed prevailed. Warfare in medieval Iceland is our topic of discussion today, and who better to join us than Peter Konechny, the editor of Medieval Warfare magazine. Before we get to my conversation with Peter, I want to tell you that we've recently partnered with Medieval Warfare magazine as a way to support this podcast. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every six months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission which goes directly back into the show. You can also get a 10% discount off of your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter Konechny. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Peter, you're the editor of Medieval Warfare magazine, a fantastic publication available in both digital and print formats that really in all of the issues that that you produce brings together some of the greatest historians and academics all centered around this broad topic of medieval warfare. You recently did an issue titled Land of Ice and Fire, Warfare in Medieval Iceland, uh, which I absolutely loved. And I think that listeners of this podcast will love as well. And I'll put a link to it in the description below. But there were a great many things discussed in this issue, namely the Sturlunga Age and the fall of the Icelandic Commonwealth in the 13th century. There's so many directions we could go with this conversation. But, but first and foremost, what what made you want to do an issue on warfare in medieval Iceland? Well, this, this issue that is one of the ones I wanted to do when I first became the editor. And uh, it's kind of odd because no one kind of thinks of warfare in Iceland. Right. Um, so my interest goes back a little over 20 years. And uh, I was doing kind of graduate history work. And I came across uh, the Sturlunga sagas. I was... Uh, I kind of exposed to like Icelandic sagas and uh, there are little bits in there to talk about wars that happen on the continent and things like that. But I came across uh, these translations of the Sturlunga sagas and I realized it was just filled with kind of warfare, filled with battles. And these aren't like small little battles involving like a dozen dozen people on each side or anything like that. There are like literally hundreds of uh, individuals fighting and taking part. So it was always something it was, I was really interested in, and it's something I realized that it's not really well known among medievalists is like this kind of period. So um, when I had a chance, uh, like figuring out, or what I'm gonna do with uh, medieval warfare, this was kind of one of the topics I wanted to put on the list. Uh, and eventually I was able to kind of uh, get kind of a team together of some really great historians and writers and kind of tell the story of Iceland. And let it get uh, passed on to like people who are interested in military history. 
Yeah, it certainly isn't one of those conflicts that, that you hear a great deal about. I mean, even, even in academic and uh, medievalist circles. So I'm really glad you did an issue on it. Now, uh, we've talked about Snorri Sturluson, the writer of the famous prose Edda, you know, a narrative of Norse mythology. Uh, we've talked about him quite a few times on this podcast. Now, uh, just by the name alone, you know, the Sturlunga Age or the Sturlunga Clan or the Sturlunga Saga, one recognizes an inherent relation to Snorri Sturluson. So for perhaps listeners who aren't yet familiar with that relationship, could you explain to them the relationship to Snorri Sturluson? Yeah, a story uh, like in as being also just this writer, he's also basically what you kind of like a, a politician, a landowner. He's he's a member of a, like a wealthy family, and they're called this the Sturla family uh, after their kind of uh, kind of patriarch of the family. And he's one of like three brothers that um, get involved in this kind of conflict that happens. Uh, so since this kind of period gets taken from from that time uh his name but it's a really kind of fascinating um period where iceland before the 13th century is kind of seen as it's often called the free state and it's a a period where they don't have a, a an actual kind of government uh like they have laws they have the all thing where people can go and mediate disputes and and have new laws but there's no kind of authority in place in the, uh, that kind of rules over the island. And this is something that uh, kind of happens from their settlement in like the 9th century all the way into the 13th. Some people kind of see it as an idyllic kind of time. Like I guess if you're, uh, you know, if you kind of believe in like no government, <laughs> that part of Iceland is the time to live in. But you kind of see the system uh, breaking down. It kind of starts in the, in the 12th century and really happens in the 13th where what, what you see is uh, the rise of, of about six families. Uh, and, and, and Snorri Sturluson is one member of one of these families. Um, and they become basically kind of like the heads of Iceland. Almost, uh, you know, gangster is probably not the right word, but they're <laughs> like, they're, they're kind of, you call them, they would kind of, we call them, you know, chieftains. But um, they're kind of lords without like a title. So, and what you kind of see is this kind of, there, there's a breakdown in kind of how peace and order is kind of maintained. And basically you wind up into a situation where most of these families are fighting each other and it's kind of like a chaos. And, it, it, and so it's uh, roughly, they say the period is like 1200 to 1264. And in 1264 is the time when like uh, they finally kind of all agree to become subjects of the King of Norway. So, which changes Iceland uh, from that time on. Well, you know, in a way, Iceland, medieval Iceland, I should say, is viewed as sort of this utopia. I mean, it, it's very much the new world of the Viking Age. And then certainly even after the Viking Age, you know, the, the later centuries of the Middle Ages. But in spite of all that Iceland had going for it, I mean, you know, not a great deal of taxes, the thing, it was really this this land that was warfare was was very much a part of the the daily lives of the people that lived there so in sterlunga saga you know for listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity to get their hands on a translation of that of that saga that compilation of sagas i should say what are some of the most interesting scenes of medieval warfare that one finds within that those texts 
Yeah, the, uh, the if you're looking for the Stolunga Saga, it's gonna be it's pretty hard to find. There is uh, a two set, uh, two volume set uh, that was done in the 1970s, but you get these kind of uh, kind of conflicts, uh, and there's these major battles um, that really kind of start in like around year 1237, uh, and that's where you go from having battles and kind of conflicts where they kind of involve a few dozen people to you get battles that had uh, you know. Something like, you know, uh, 700 on one side, 500 on the other. I think the largest one had uh, 2,500 uh, people involved. And this, this island only has 40,000 people together. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, if you get, you know, get 1,000 people involved, that's, you know, I think everyone knows somebody that's fighting in that uh, conflict. Right. The, like, I think there's uh, one kind of famous, there's one naval battle, which I really found interesting. And uh, it, was, it happens in Hunafoy Bay. Uh, and it's, it's uh, basically both sides have about, well, one side has about like a dozen ships. The other has like uh, 40. Uh, but they have this kind of great little fight where they're throw, most of the time they're spending throwing rocks at each other. And that's one like, like, Warfare and like battles in Iceland are a little different from the what you see like in medieval Europe at the time. You know, it, it's not not for a, the lack of a better term uh, smooth in medieval Europe uh, with knights and archers and stuff like that. Um, you you have kind of sides that kind of will you know one side will gather their forces, have like logistics or anything preparation, so they're basically. They, they all kind of saddle up. Uh, they don't have any really supplies, so they have to go and find the enemy as quickly as possible. But they kind of reach them and, uh, try and have these uh, attacks. Usually one side might be at their uh, a home, which is not fortified, but they have like walls, like small stone walls and stuff like that. They're usually there to keep out sheep, but they could use that as protection. Uh, they could use some buildings as protection. But you'd have these kind of conflicts where there's these attacks, and one real aspect is that there's a lot of stone throwing involved. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's usually not particularly lethal. These battles aren't aren't involving like people getting killed like by the hundreds. Like I think the the largest death toll in one of these battles is seventy people. But you have these kind of uh, attacks where they're trying to probe and attack at each other they would like eventually kind of move in for like hand-to-hand combat but the often the, the goal is to take out the leaders of the enemy so so you have um, battles where like if you're a regular soldier it's not particularly dangerous um, but if you're a leader it could be a literal life or death because you're either going to get killed in the battle or killed after the battle if you lose yeah yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned stone throwing, and there's a beautiful illustration featured in the magazine of uh, the name of the particular battle escapes me, but it's a sea battle, a naval battle, and it's a collection of longships sailing very close to one another. And there's great piles of rocks and stones in the middle of each longship. And there's, you know, dozens of men reaching for the stones. In terms of the forces that are warring against each other during the Sturlunga Age, are we dealing with sort of untrained farmers, sort of free men just taking up arms and, and joining forces for the sake of, you know, honor or a sort of common goal that is seeking to be achieved here? 
Yeah, very, very much so. It's, it's not so much honor as they're in these kind of networks with whoever is leading them. Um, they're often like, uh, if you're a, a, one of these families, uh, you, you get your extended kin group, you get people that like, uh, basically are part of your farming uh, situation uh, who or friends and stuff like that. And you try and, and, and get them together. Um, and occasionally you see, uh, maybe what we call like mercenaries, uh, people from Norway that seem to have more experience. Uh, and they kind of take on these positions as kind of not leaders, but as like the, you know, strong men that protect the, the commander or at least know what they're doing. But yeah, you, it's basically, um, yeah, the, the kind of farmers and in some cases sailors and fishermen that are, are, are taking place in this fight. So you don't, you don't have a kind of, uh, and maybe this is one of the reasons it's not so bloody is that like a lot of these are people that know each other and they don't want to, they want to kill each other, right? Because, you know, in a winter time, you're going to kind of need their help and you're going to be like meeting them uh, like for harvest and stuff like that. So you're not, they're not out to, they're not out to get like glory and things like that. Uh, it doesn't seem to be very much so. Um, if you're kind of a, a son, like there's honor in that. So like sometimes there's, you get sons and brothers that are fighting uh, to take revenge. So, What was the relationship between these people who were taking up arms and their chieftains? You know, certainly Snorri Sturluson's kin uh, were very much made up of, of those chieftains. What was the relationship? between these people, these fighting men and their chieftains, why did they go to war for their chieftains? What did they have to gain from doing so? Um, it's just like the, the situation where, like, if you're these six families, you, they're, they're becoming wealthy. They're actually buying out all the kind of smaller guys, right, at mm. this time. So it's very much uh, a situation where it's, uh, the, the chieftain has, uh, like, owns a farm and says, like, it, you know, the five guys that work on that farm, you will be coming and joining me. Uh, and uh, also make sure your brother and your cousin uh, arrives. Um, so in that way, like, is a sense like they can kind of put like kind of pressure on them just because they in some ways are like lords. But other times this, uh, you know, it's kind of these extended uh, family relationships and, kinds of friendships that kind of form so in, in some cases it's like you know one guy will say well you know i've made i'm your friend and i can't fight for you uh just because i have an agreement with the other person but maybe next year i'll come and fight for you and and then there's some cases where like a person's starting to look like they're on the winning side and people start joining on to him with regard to medieval warfare you know the Icelandic sagas are famous for sort of the mythological uh, concepts that appear throughout this, this genre of literature. Is, is that something that we see creeping up in the Sturlunga sagas, or is it, is it very much just more focused on the historical occurrences? You know, I, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not asking, are we seeing the appearances of Odin, but certainly are we seeing things that uh, a historian can evaluate today as being um, clearly something of myth um what you do see is a kind of a lot of portents and like a bit of superstition 
for example, you see people having dreams, right? And dreams are very important in Icelandic culture. So you, you get like uh, some of the characters, you know, saying like, oh, I had this dream of such and such happening. And uh, I, it's, it's like, oh, I think there's going to be a battle going to happen this, this spring. You see people that say, hey, I saw this uh, strange lady uh, come to my farm with the idea of like, this is someone who is outerworldly. And she comes in and, and tells them a warning in, in poetry, right? So you, yeah. so you have a lot, you have quite a lot of that. So you get um, kind of like these uh, portents and dreams uh, that play a big role uh, in the kind of lead up to these battles and lead up to conflicts. And obviously people are like, after the fact, they're like, hey, I remember this dream. And yeah, we had this battle and I wonder if they played well into each other. But you don't have anything, um, it's very much more grounded than, say, a lot of the other sagas uh, would be in, like, the sense of, you know, like, not many involvement of gods or anything like that. Now, keep in mind also that when, during this period, as a lot, when a lot of these sagas are actually being written, uh, like, uh, Snorri is, is thought to be the uh, writer of Edgel's saga. And uh, so... You can often think that like the, these people, uh, the Icelanders, are kind of writing these sagas at a time when they're having this civil war. Right. That that's really fascinating. Um, really fascinating concept. And one question that I am wondering: uh, Snorri Sturluson died in, I believe it was 1241, and he was assassinated. Perhaps this is something different entirely. But was his death a result of sort of the the civil war that was going on Iceland at the time? Yes, very much so. Uh, the, there's a battle that ha- happens a few years earlier, like in 1238, called the and that involves his nephew and brother, and they get killed. Uh, Snorri is not there at that battle, and he kind of uh, is, tries to be a bit of a peacemaker at the time, uh, but he's basically lit. Once his like, other parts of his family members get killed, he, he's kind of left on his own. And uh, eventually some of the people that were involved in that first battle come and just go into his home and just kill him. Mm. So, but yeah, yeah, he, these are very much uh, like, um, you have to consider like, uh, in like there are these cases where like, they're not just like be able to, you know, fight in large battles, but they can actually raid each other. And if you're not uh, well protected, uh, you can wind up getting killed quite easily. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point you brought up. You know, on this podcast, you know, we've talked about the exceptionality of Iceland and certainly with regard to the Icelandic sagas. You know, why is it that this, this tiny island in the North Atlantic, settled in the ninth century by Vikings, was able to produce such this magnificent and unique um, canon of literature? And it's really interesting to note as well that, that wars like those of the Sturlunga age were occurring at the very time that all of these stories and indeed oral traditions were being written down. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating kind of time. Uh, like it really, t- like we all know about the kind of great Icelandic st- sagas and they are uh, for, for the most part being written out in the, the 13th century and the 14th century. So they're being written about. Uh, and, and I think in some ways uh, they were, the writer, when they were writing it, they wanted to show how an idyllic world Iceland could be. 
Uh, and there's a lot about how, uh, how peacemaking and how feuding should take place in Iceland. Uh, and it's kind of juxtaposed against what's actually taking place, uh, where that kind of like, all the little aspects of Icelandic culture that should be working, that should prevent feuds from uh, getting out of control, don't. Um, like, for example, like the all thing. You know, it's everyone's supposed to go to the all thing and resolve their disputes. Uh, but, uh, and that's a system that works for like 300, over 300 years, but by the 13th century, you have sides saying, well, I'm just not going to go to the all thing. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get there, or I'm not going to listen to their judgments there. Uh, so that's how it kind of breaks down, like part of Iceland's kind of, you know, fabled period and in, in time. It kind of breaks in the way a system that worked fairly well, I think, in kind of containing feuds and violence uh, kind of erodes. And, and like eventually they have to kind of seek out a new way, which is uh, uh, find a king. Uh, and they, uh, and it's something, of course, like every other country in Europe they says, like, well, every other country says, well, we all have a king and that's how it should be done. And, uh, and that's how, you know, order and go- good government are established. So, and that's eventually, that's what they have to kind of choose. And then you have like Iceland kind of, it goes back to a peaceful kind of era for uh, centuries afterwards. There's no real kind of talk of war or, or civil conflict in Iceland. But at the same time, they're not the kind of free peoples, as they would, uh, historians kind of mention. Um, and like Iceland's not like an independent country until the 20th century. Right. And, you know, for better or for worse, I've heard it said, too, that the Sturlunga age is very much um, looked back on by certain people as an age of very much freedom from government and so forth. And that is in light of the struggle that was going on between those who wanted to keep Iceland free and those who wanted to sort of, in a way, submit to the Norwegian throne, which is eventually what happened. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I, I think. You know, you know. I think Nor- Norway has been trying to kind of convince Icelanders that um, that you really should have a king, and, it, and the Catholic Church is also trying to do that. Like uh, they see it as a kind of a system that works fairly well in their interests, anyways, uh, to have uh, kind of royalty and government in place. Um, because Catholic Church, you know, there are, are bishops in Iceland. Um, but they don't have particularly uh, strong authority either. Um, and they're also involved in the kind of feuding that takes place. So the Icelandic system, it seems, very, it seems to work very well if everyone has kind of an equal level of wealth and power. But mm-hmm. once, you know, it gradually breaks down just as, you know, certain families come and rise to the top and they start buying out and just getting wealthier and wealthier. And they, uh, eventually, they're just too strong to be controlled by the kind of social norms of Iceland, of Icelandic culture. So once you come too powerful and the stakes are too high, you know, it's hard to get peacemaking. Certainly. Um, There's so many fascinating articles in this issue of medieval warfare, Peter. Um, There's one, you know, about 
just Iceland during the Middle Ages generally. There's one about daily life in medieval Iceland. There's one about the sagas of Iceland. And there's one about two battles as well, one which I, I hinted at, um, the fascinating illustration that was done of the men in the naval battle throwing rocks at one another. Do you have a particular conflict during uh, this period of warfare in medieval Iceland that, that you find the most interesting and for you as the editor of this magazine was the most enjoyable to sort of assemble and then you know produce for many people to learn about who otherwise would have probably never even have heard about this overlooked uh, period in history? Yeah, I know we had, we had, there's about, you know, four or five battles that we could have talked about in the issue. Basically chose on, on two, and one is uh, this naval battle, it's called uh, Floa Bar- Bargdi is the name, uh, but it happens in Hunafloi Bay, which is in the north, northwest of Iceland. And most of these battles actually are taking place in the northwest of Iceland. Um, they, and th- that was, again, it was really fascinating, just, um, where you have really a one side where the underdog, the one with the less troops, but they're better prepared. They actually win out. Um, then you also have Battle of Orlikstadter, which is the first really tough conflict. Um, and what just is surprising is like the executions that happen at the end. Um, there's a story of uh, uh, one of the leaders of the winning side. His name is Gizur Thorfaldsen. And, uh, he executes the enemy, his uh, kind of rival, literally by grabbing an axe from one of his subordinates, um, coming up to his rival who has been beaten and basically lying almost dead. And he, he comes up and he jumps. They say he jumps in the air as he goes and puts his axe to his head. And that's, what this, that's sort of the scene that we actually put on the cover yeah. is this person. And it really reveals how gritty and dirty the war was um, where you have, you know, you know, like people just, you know, um, going kind of full tilt at killing your opponents. And Giza's story is in, I included like, I had a bit of more of a Giza story to tell because he, one of the last kind of big actions in this civil war is when his, house gets burned down uh during a wedding there's a uh basically him and another family uh have decided to have a wedding to um uh, make a peace between them and they had it's one of the uh, big events of the social calendar in iceland about 200 people show up uh for this wedding uh, feast uh and then, like a couple nights later uh a group of of other men that had been had that scene of one of their family members die at, at that bat- battle at Orlikstadter, they come in. This is something that happens like 16 years later. They come and take revenge by attacking, trying to kill Gizur, but they're not able to do so. And what they do is they set fire to the uh, uh, hall where everyone is staying uh, and basically kill uh, by burning to death uh, Gizur's wife, his son, uh, his daughter-in-law, uh, dozens of other guests, and uh, they try and go after him. And then uh, Geezer survives by jumping into a vat of whey uh, and like kind of survives uh, that. Wow. And like the, the next morning, he, he comes out, and there's this particularly you know 
horrific and great scene where they they bring out the remains of his uh, wife and son, uh, and it's it's quite something. Like to see how his reaction to that, and uh, and and Geezer goes on. He survives. He takes revenge, and he becomes the kind of like de facto second in command of Iceland for a while, but. It's these are it's you know really fascinating stories to tell you know and like and basically you know it's told in these Stolunga sagas and it's just something I really wanted to bring out there so people uh, if you read medieval warfare it's you know you know if you like what you read there I would certainly suggest try and find these sagas which again are, are a bit hard to find but they do uh, you can't they do exist and uh, and there are bits of it online as well. I was just going to ask about that. Certainly, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'll put a link to the issue of Medieval Warfare magazine in the description of this episode. But yeah, it, it is true. The Sterlunga sagas are difficult to find. I mean, even in my own attempts to find to find um, online translations, English translations, as well as hard copies, I think I came across one or two. But do you have any insight as to the best place one might be able to get their hands on, on an English translation? Oh, okay. Well, funny enough, um, yeah, the translations were done by like the, I think it's the American Scandinavian Society, something like that. It was a group that existed. Um, it's a kind of two-volume book. Um, I did, when I was back, the editor of, of the De Re Militari website, I did get permission to republish uh, some sections. Mm. Uh, so they're all actually on the De Re uh, Militari.org uh, website in the primary sources. Um, and uh, it's uh, so, th- and that's something I did. Oh, maybe it was two thousand two that I, I actually got those things up. Uh, but yeah, like uh, beyond that, the books might be available through uh, Google, uh, Google Books. Uh, maybe uh, some access there, but uh, and otherwise, it's maybe some used bookstores. But yeah, it is. Um, the translations uh, aren't. They were. It's not like they were published by a well-known publishing house. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it might be something that we're going to have to wait uh, another like 30 or 40 years before they get into public domain. <laughs> Unfortunately, but that's great to know that you, um, you did a few chapters uh, through De Re Militari. I'll put a link to that in the description as well. And then there's a book, Medieval Iceland Society Sagas Empowered by Jesse Bayak that has a chapter all about the um, Sterlunga sagas. So certainly that book as well is yeah. something I'd recommend. Yeah, there are a handful of other books uh, that, about the Sterlungas uh, uh, age and the Sterlunga sagas. But it's, yeah, it's not something even like historians have really covered a lot in kind of any fashion. This was one of the reasons I was really happy to kind of you know, create this is hopefully get a little more buzz going on these kind of sagas because they're so fascinating as, as tales and as historical sources. I'm really glad you did. Now, you said that you discovered these while you were doing history work in graduate school. Were you doing work intrinsically related to medieval Icelandic literature? Sort of how did you stumble upon these sagas? Because, I mean, the chances of anyone doing that are pretty rare, as we've discussed today. Yeah, I I was uh, in a course on violence in the Middle Ages. Uh, It was taught by Mark Meyerson at the University of Toronto, and I think he still teaches it. And um, he introduced us uh, to the Icelandic sagas uh, in general. Like, you know, here's uh, Nagyal saga or Egil saga. Let's, let's take a look at that. 
And I was really kind of fascinated um, right away uh, because I've always had like in, I, when you go to say, you say a big li- a university library, like University of Toronto's, uh, they have all the sagas there in one collection and, you know, or one set of uh, range of uh, bookcases. So they're all, and most of them are in English translation. Like uh, even like the very smaller ones, there are, there are dozens and dozens of sagas. Uh, some like uh, Nijals and Eagles are really well known, and there's there's several translations. There are others that you know where they, someone did a translation in say 1980, and that's all we have uh, of like who's kind of done work. And these are smaller like stuff that you could take maybe uh, taking you an hour to read, right? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, like I I wound up. Uh, catching on and I was already kind of interested in military history so I wound up um, reading more and more I did some graduate work and it was actually uh, and then it was one of the first papers I gave uh, a public presentation on was about uh, warfare in medieval Iceland oh wow based based on Sirlanga and that was uh, I gave that at the International Congress of Medieval Studies and maybe say I'd say 2001 or 2002 I again gave that paper and uh i just remember people like well you know people going up before me it's like what what, what in the world are you going to talk about peter (laughs) yeah (laughs) wow um that is absolutely fascinating well peter it's been such a pleasure speaking with you on the podcast i'm so glad that we could do this today and um certainly as i mentioned i just implore people to pick up a copy of the the issue of the magazine and subscribe as well, certainly. I know many of us are in quarantine during uh, the age of COVID-19, so we're all looking for for great historical things to read. And Medieval Warfare magazine, I think, will will suit our interests and fill that need. But but Peter, thanks so much again for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me again. It's, It's such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show, and would like to support the podcast, you can now do so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi-monthly issues of, in my opinion, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode as the History of Vikings podcast will receive a commission. You can also get 10% off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much again for listening. Join us here again for another episode. 